Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. And I'm Nat Mose. Today we'll be talking about four color humans at Gen Con, vintage in Iowa, and pancakes. Specifically, pancakes for breakfast. Uh, hi everyone, we're here with Steven Stearman. He's the humans player from Gen Con. You may have heard of him. He became sort of notorious for demolishing a whole bunch of people. You included. With, yeah, including me <laughs> with a four-color humans list that apparently he put together 15 minutes before the tournament. Hi, Steven. Hello. Hi, Steven. Yeah. I'm glad you could be here. I know Jeff and I talked about it at Gen Con where we needed to get you on the podcast just because you, you were such a fun and friendly opponent, had such an amazing amazing run both days. It was sort of this aggro yeah. deck that came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, the conglomeration of standard cards that right. about yeah. every opponent needed to read. Yeah, so you had, like, I, I played against you in the last round on Friday, and it just seemed like you had a blast all day, so... I think we were both looking forward to getting to talk to you more. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was just everyone there was incredibly fun and friendly, and there's nothing quite as enjoyable as having all your opponents being there trying to figure out what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit, like, how how the deck came about? I know we were talking a little bit before and how, you know, you ended up having to borrow cards and throw things together sort of the last minute. You know, what's the story behind the deck? Right, yeah, so I have one friend that lives down in Cedar Rapids, um, Brian Potter. I think he cast Acquire on Jeff on Saturday. <laughs> Total blowout. Piping <laughs> <laughs> me to the bomb. Oh, yeah. yeah it so, wasn't even a bomb, it was pissing me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it can be a bomb. Most valuable card in the Kamigawa. It was really good in that, in that, in that, uh, that situation. Anyway, so... But yeah, so he's a big collector, and he's always been wanting to play vintage more and more. Last year at Gen Con, he played vintage for the first time in an actual tournament. So he's really excited about doing it this year. And his girlfriend also is a big collector, but she doesn't. She he's not so much into playing at the competitive level. And so they offered me and his brother chances to play vintage. And so the basic thing about what we could borrow was. She had power minus mock sapphire and time walk <laughs> and black lotus. So also her ancestral recall was something like a 9.5 graded alpha. So <laughs> it, it wasn't getting played with. No, riffle shuffle that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I heard a story about a guy unsleeving his vintage deck and riffle shuffling it to make his opponent just grief quit. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. Yeah, but so basically, the knowledge we had with those cards being available was that we weren't playing blue. Right. So the guy's brother, um, Luke Potter, spent some time going online, and he found the human's intuition thread on the mana drain. Okay. He kind of combined a couple lists people had made to get his, basically what he thought would work or just be really the most fun to play. Okay. And, And so we, Saturday morning... He had already decided he didn't want to play Vintage. He wanted to do another tournament. Oh, this would have been and Friday I morning. Yeah, yeah I, I want to play Vintage. Yeah. I mean, I'd already played Block the day before, which was a format I'd never played before. So I was like, you know, I 
Because, you know, block and vintage, that's what people, you know, they play both those formats together, right? Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. They're like the, the same. The smallest format and the largest format. That's, <laughs> that's common targets for, for one player. Right. I did enjoy it because I'm pretty sure I'm the only person to play in both those formats at Gen Con, probably for the last 20 years or something. Oh, yeah. That could be true. But so as a result, we didn't finish throwing the deck together until about 50 minutes before the vintage tournament started. Uh-huh. So, I mean, we had, we were talking a bit earlier about, that's why there's some funky choices. For instance, right. the, the, the Imperial Recruiter was uh-huh. supposed to be another Oath of Ghouls, but we couldn't find an Oath of Ghouls, and for some reason, none of the vendors brought any with them, so... <laughs> I like that you replaced Oath of Ghouls with the Imperial Recruiter. How much markup is that? Yeah, it's like, like <laughs> that's funny, because, like, looking at that list, Imperial Recruiter is one of the last cards that I would question, because it seems so right in there. Right. Exactly, and that's why it never came out, because... Yeah. It yeah, works it really good. well. So what you're telling us is that if you want to play Vintage, you should get into the format the night before and then finish your deck 15 minutes before the tournament. Exactly. I mean, that's okay. the record for success because I won my first six games of <laughs> These were the actual, like, have you, had you tested the format before? Have you played other <laughs> games of Vintage? Well, I had, um... Let's see, before that time, I once played one match, I think, of Vintage with Brian Potter and his girlfriend had proxied up decks. That was a year ago, right before Gen Con. <laughs> nice. So I, that was the first time I've ever actually played a match. Otherwise, leading up to Gen Con, I solitaired a couple of the combo decks, so uh, I, I knew how all the combo decks worked pretty well. Right. But granted, for my deck, that knowledge didn't come in too useful. It basically meant how important is Thalia? Right, sure. Do I need her turn one, or can I play her turn two? Right, yeah. So, did you learn anything else? I mean, did you, have you read on read things about Vintage and knew the decks, or was it really just sort of, here's your aggro deck, go ahead? I, I had done some research beforehand. Okay. With MTG Top 8, I just basically spent a while looking through all the decks, getting ideas of... Okay. And Brian had suggested to me Brian DeMar's articles in New York City. Yeah, um, sure. So other than that, and then just a tiny, tiny bit on the mana drain was all I had. I mean, and now, <laughs> yeah, and that was also one of the really awesome parts about going to Gen Con was that I was able to ask people sure. um, before about where where should I start going if I want to get into vintage, and I think it was uh, Jacko handed me a business card for Eternal Central. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, you know, so I have them in my wall. It's just like, ooh, it's embossed. <laughs> I mean, it's a high-quality card, I mean. I, Jaco spares no expense. It's true. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> uh, um, well, that's, I mean, that's awesome that you were able to just sort of just pick this up and use what you had learned from other formats and what you picked up online from Vintage to, to just go in and start smashing people. Did you feel like your inexperience was helpful at all and that you were just going into it swing and not, I don't know. I mean, I feel that sometimes if you don't know what to watch out for, you just don't fear anything and you just get into it. Right. To some degree, maybe, though, I mean, I don't think I ran into a single card over the weekends I didn't know what it did, uh-huh. um, because I play a lot of EDH, and so and so between EDH and Legacy, and for my deck standard, I had played at least against all the cards before. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
But do you think that, because <laughs> I, I think one of the first things you told me was that this was your first vintage tournament. And I, I'm wondering if you told anyone else that and, and maybe that made them underestimate you and, um, <laughs> and, and keep bad hands and, or, you know, just try and go for things that they couldn't actually do and, and you were able to capitalize on that? Yeah, I, well, the only time I ever had anybody seem like where I thought they were making an error was against you where you spell snared my, um, I think you was my confidant. Uh, that was totally on purpose. Yeah, 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 exactly. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> like, you, you, it's uncountable with Cavern because I, I know. <laughs> he's like, I, I want my elementals. And he's like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are going to be the death of me. No, that was totally on purpose. <laughs> it's like, what else am I going to do with this? <laughs> Yeah, so what did you end up playing against both days? I mean, did you feel, you must have felt comfortable in most of your matchups, because I think you won, obviously you won most of them. Did you, what was your record on, on Saturday? On Saturday, I ended up 5-2. Okay. Uh, my two losses were to a Bug Fish deck and a Young Pyromancer deck, of which um, both those guys may top eight. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually played three Young Pyromancer decks on Friday, and the one that beat me was a guy that knew what all my cards did. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it was grossly unfair. <laughs> I, mean, I cast my Master of the Fells, and, you know, I started offering him to read, because that's what everyone had been doing all day. And you have to read both sides of it, too. Right? That's... <laughs> well, exactly. And that was, um, I think it was against one of my Young Pyromancer opponents. I played Huntmaster... And then when it flipped and killed his young pyromancer, he just wait, it, it does that too? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a time where, you know, I was able to swing and he blocked wrong because he didn't read that the hunt master had trample and oh. Yeah, but then this guy he played standard, so he knew the hunt master, and I played Oath of Ghouls and his reaction was just, Oh, I played that in Carador, counter. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, oh man, this all my tech just gone. I can't unnerve them. Right. You, you have you have no tech that's no secret, secret, right? Well, let's talk about some of your one ups there. I mean, I think I, I think that the yeah, like the actual part of the deck, the Deathrite Shaman, Noble Hierarch, Mirror of Abbrook, Thalia, even Casalia Pride, Bane Star Confidant. I think those are all fairly standard. Even when you get to the actual removal of Rupt Decay and sorts of plowshares, those would be pretty common in this. But then you had uh, let's see, eight, ten one ups. I mean, they're sort of, they're, they're all very good. It's just, you know, what made you choose those one of? Wait, I'm, I'm looking at the at the Saturday list. I don't know if you made changes between Friday and Saturday. Yeah, there are only a couple minor ones. Probably one of the biggest changes that, you know, there's there's two Sting Scourgers in the sideboard. Mm-hmm. Those are main board for Friday. Okay. And the basic train of thought behind them in the list, you know, and this one thing's where the guy who made the deck wasn't entirely fluent in vintage. Um, he'd mainly seen that suggested by people in the past and such, but it was near useless for me. Well, I think oh, really? that the Sting Scourgers are there to protect against Tinker, which your deck normally would be fairly soft against, but I think that there was probably record low Tinker at Gen Con. Yeah. Exactly. That was amazing, because I had not because I figured when I go against a White Steel deck, I can still bring them in. Yeah. Because it seems good. Other than that, I had my three swords of plowshare if I didn't auto lose to it. But, right. But no, I mean that definitely would be it. But actually, um, in one um time in between rounds, I on Friday I played against Brian Potter, um, the guy who was lending me cards. Right. And he was playing his blue blue with a splash of black Tinker control deck. Sure. And he got I think a turn one or turn two Tinker in the Blightsteel. 
Mm-hmm. And I just play Cavern Naming Warrior Stingsforger. Nice. So he's just sitting there with a Force of Will blue card in his hand. He's really, really... Ouch. Yeah. Speaking of Cavern of Souls, that card was just insane in it. Yeah, Cavern is really good. I mean... Especially against things playing blue. Yeah. I know we were looking at your land base because you have, I think it's four Deathrite Shaman and three Noble Hierarch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which seems like it's a lot of mana fixing, but you only run the three wasteland. Was that a decision, or did you not have the fourth wasteland? I had the fourth wasteland. It was actually in the sideboard. The board, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. The biggest problem with it is that the colors were so tight. Yeah. Um, you're, because... you're playing Orzhov Pontiff and the Huntmaster of the Fells, for example. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So just as a result, it just got got put on the board. I kind of wanted to be able to make it work after Friday to play it. Yeah. I didn't want to cut a creature for it, and that's the only thing I could reasonably cut. Because you just needed those colored mana sources. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, and on Orzhov Pontiff, speaking of it, I added him in for Saturday because I played against the three young pyromancers. Young pyromancers, right. Yeah, we were talking about it, we were like, Orzhov Pontiff, what does that do? Oh, it probably really blows out young pyromancer decks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure it does. Did you actually get to play it against young pyromancer? I did. I think the most I ever got with it, though, was two tokens, though... There's one time where I got a Bob and a young Pyromancer, so... Nice. That's like that. Yeah, I was going to say, it also kills the Pyromancer, doesn't it? Yep, exactly, yeah. So it, it yeah. creates a nice one-sided board wipe. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's a human, so Cavern makes it uncounterable. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that seems really good. I, I was looking at the the three standouts. seem to be the Orzhov Hotep, which we've already talked about, Huntmaster of the Fells, and... Exava, Rakdos, Bloodwitch. And so what was the, what went into those three cards specifically? When obviously we've already talked about the Pontiff. Right, yeah. The Huntmaster just, I mean, is one of those things where I can't remember who it was I was talking with because it was one where on Saturday there were things where people would be like, wait, you're the guy playing Huntmaster in your deck? Yeah, what's your writer? Yeah. Boro, I get to tie into top eight now. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> the people, completely not believing it. And so I remember one guy laughing goes, you know, honestly, my deck has no way to deal with that. Right. Yeah, yeah and the flip being able to kill so many relevant creatures, because I actually found it really funny that Snapcaster Mage is really annoying for my deck. Because one thing I'm doing constantly is attacking with things like Dark Confidant and Mayor of Averbrook. Right. Cards that will trade with Snapcaster Mage, but I really don't want to. Right, sure. And so just having the extra ways to deal with that was nice. Exava the Blood Witch is just an amazing Jace killer. <laughs> and she kind of has pseudo hexproof in that she can't be bolted and she can't be abrupticate. Right. So and I don't even know if I played against a white opponent that would have been running Swords of Plowshare the over the entire weekend. Yeah. I mean, it probably would have been in a sort of a fish deck or maybe Bomberman or something like that. And then, so all of those were good for you? Like, I know that on Saturday you resolved Exava against our friend Tuan, who was playing Workshops. He was going to be unable to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, and that's thing. It just, it's one of it's almost just hilarious how you look at the card and it's an intro pack rare. It's worth something like a quarter for a non-foil yeah. one, so... And just having it be able to just completely smash phase because it's really <laughs> hard to deal with. If they're not playing a worm coil in their deck, right. they probably don't have a straight answer for it. Right. Well, I mean, their answer for it would normally to make it 
unable to resolve <laughs> exactly by, by casting costs probably. So it's if it resolves, they're already in a bad situation, and then it's just the nail in the coffin because it's what three three first strike, right? So. <laughs> With unleash, so then it becomes a four four. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it just kind of ridiculous. So oh, I guess it could be dismembered, but right. I did have one mud opponent. He dismembered something of mine, but he had transfer out. So it was interesting because he had to pay three mana plus four life to deal with some creature. I think that actually was Tuan. Yeah, I think I I remember that discussion. I know there was a big question about how Trinosphere and Dismember work together. I remember that. Yeah, I think game one against him, he had out the one that makes all spells cost one more, a Sphere of Resistance. Yeah, Sphere of Resistance. And so I I got to play the ingot chewer for six mana and just start beating face <laughs> with it. You hard cast ingot chewer against I, him? I actually got to kill two people on Saturday with hard casted ingot chewer. Oh, man, what was he doing? Savage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Hard cast ingot chewer is pretty much the best way to win against Chop. That's just like total blowoutville for them. It's because it just lets them know that they're already losing because yeah. you resolved a six drop or you resolved a five drop rather. <laughs> wow. Because I think he had two mutavolts out and I played and I have two, I had two noble high arcs out. So just yeah, swinging for five. Go right. ahead, block. So he had to jump two mutavolts to it. Wow. Ouch. No but no, uh, and we were talking about how with seven mana making dudes, you would be a shop's nightmare because they just can't shut down your overall right. mana production. It's just too much of it. I played shop twice. I won the first time I played against it in three, the second time in two. And when they would play Trinisphere, I'd be, it's not true, um, uh, stacks, I'd be tapping stuff down and still playing my stuff. And then they were, it basically was time walking me at one point. Yeah. My loss against, uh, against Shop, um, the game loss was he turned one worm coiled and chalice for zero. And normally that's not, I can, the, the worm coil obviously is very annoying. Oh yeah. Normally <laughs> it's, it's chalice annoying. for zero means nothing against me except right. I kept a one lander with two moxes in it. So. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, so he won that one. I just kept playing lands so I could see more of a deck. I think he strip mined my cavern on squirrel. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, I just play land. Just let this be fine. I'll, I'll see more of your deck as you kill me. Right. And then yeah, but no, wow. he would not let me cast those squirrels. Which I mean, yeah. probably <laughs> that, that's rough. So uh, you know, looking at your mana base beyond those, I assume with twenty four lands and seven creatures that you must not have had a problem with any of your colors all day because I mean, you're even looking at the, For the most- with the four wastelands and the strips, like you seem like you have a lot. Right, yeah, and that, that was thing, um, Dark Confidant wasn't as reliable, um, sorry, not, uh, that's right, Shaman wasn't as reliable a mana dork as sure. it normally would be, because I only have eight cards to actually enable it between the Feshes and the Wasteland and the Strip Mine. Right. But for creatures, Cavern of Souls pretty much would smooth out my mana base enough, I didn't have any trouble. Yeah. The spell I had the most trouble casting was Liliana of the Veil. Right, because Caverns doesn't do anything, and it's double black. Right, exactly, and so High R can't get help out with that, and so, right. and, and that was the reason that she was only one of in the deck, because there was um at least once where she basically just locked the game out for me, mm-hmm. where I just was able to keep the blue deck from drawing anything as I did my Thalia beats. Right, sure. But other than that, she might have been my most sided out card, but... I think that's also because I was playing against a lot of young Pyromancer decks where 
make them sack creatures when they're making 1-1 elementals with every cantrip. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it just loses something. Yeah, it's not... It doesn't quite not, get there. Right. <laughs> doesn't have quite the luster. So what about... I mean, what other decks did you play? What, what was your impression of some of the matchups you had? I know you played against Birmingham at least on Saturday. I'll, I'll be completely honest. I got lucky in that one. Yeah, I thought so too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think game one was the time I won the roll. I did turn one, cavern naming humans, mox, Thalia. Nice. And he just kind of sighs. <laughs> his land, Tolarian Academy, and says go. Ouch. He showed me in his hand he had Tolarian. He kept, because he kept a one lander. With Tolarian Academy. Yeah, and then some like double mox and mana crypt. Wow. So, I mean, he just had his ridiculous mana hand, but because I won the die roll. Right. Sometimes yeah. it goes like that. I mean, like you said, you had kept that hand against shops that was land mox mox, and he kept chalice zero. Yeah, I mean, he, he caught you on that one. That's right, the risk. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and then on um, game three, he he used necropotens for at that point you could only use it for something like Sabin, which is still a, you know a new hand and all, but he just ended up whiffing hardcore. So. That's the Jerry Yang way. Oh, was that Jerry? Sure was. Oh, Thank you. poor Jerry. <laughs> Jerry. Jerry is the most unlucky combo player I've ever seen. <laughs> it's actually really impressive to watch him play because the worst possible thing that happens does. <laughs> There's video of him playing Mind's Desire for, is it eight? I think it was eight. And nothing. It's like all mana. Oh, God. It's like Mind's Desire for eight past the turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's not really unexpected except this. So what else, I mean, what else did you play against? See, I played against Doomsday. Okay. That one was, I won one of my, one of the games with just the early Thalia riding it to victory. Another one was, I think it was against him, where he got a turn one Mind Sculptor, hmm. and I had sided in, on the play, and I had sided in Red Elemental Blast. Nice. So I just untapped, well, I just drew drew for first turn, Red Elemental Blasted, and said go. <laughs> so you got to use, uh, basically he got to use the Black Lotus so he could brainstorm. Right. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Blowout. Yeah. So what, I mean, what ended up beating you then? What beat me on Saturday was, um, Mark... Mark Lenigra? Yeah, Lenigra. I was like, I, I can never remember how Seal's last name is. I, yep. I, I ended up playing against him with his, Grixis color-wise, Jace Control. Yeah. It's basically just mono blue splash black for tutors and Yagmas will red for lightning bolt. Yeah. But, um, part of it was that I met him really early in the weekend, and so we were just talking and BSing the entire time because it was, Brian was good friends with him, and so he introduced the two of us and was telling him how he's ripping it apart with the humans deck, with Exotic oh. Master. And he was just shaking his head, not believing it. Yeah, yeah. But so it had the downside that when I played him in the um, quarterfinals on Saturday, he knew almost exactly what my deck did. Right. And so as a result, he he kept hands that were very combo-tastic. Yeah. So he was fourth seed, I was fifth seed, because I chose a double draw. And he ended up going off on his turn two, game one. Mm. Game two, I kept I kept a hand with pretty good action, but I didn't have the early Thalia, and on his turn two, he time-walked and then comboed on that extra turn. Right. 
And so both times he drew one of the time ball key and then tinkered for the other half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Nat and I were talking about that matchup because we knew that you were going into it, and we thought that your chances seemed pretty good. Yeah, I actually predicted that you would win. I mean, Un- unless just to Jeff, but yeah. yeah, unless something happened exactly like what did happen, where he just right. threw together the combo immediately and just won. Yeah, right. Exactly, and I was wondering because I played time ball twice on Friday, and I got a decent amount of playtesting against with Brian, and it felt pretty heavily my side because. Yeah. Between Cavern and Thalia, and then just running the four Abrupt Decays. Yeah, exactly. I mean, abrupt Decay seems really good against Time Bolt combo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's got, he was playing Bobs, I think, too, right? So he had, yep, uh, yeah. he had uh, four Dark Confidants. And yeah. Was, I mean, you had a lot of advantages there, and I, obviously we didn't know about you or about him knowing what was in your deck, because it seems like you could tilt the scales, especially if he was smart about it and kept good hands against you, but. Exactly, and I th- I don't think he mulliganed either game. I think he just oh. had naturally good hands, yeah. but it's one where he knew, when you know you don't need Force of Will against me, I mean, it'd be different if you were just playing against the dark and, well, this right. hand can co- let me combo on turn two by lose to any other combo deck. Right, yeah. It's, it's good to have good hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's one of the things that if I would have had the turn one Thalia in game two, I probably would have won because... I always win when I get the turn one Thalia, but... <laughs> is that, uh, I mean, is that an accurate assessment? Do you feel like that's part of the keys to your victory, is having the turn one Thalia? I, I think I only had it three or four times okay. all the games for the weekend, but when I got the turn one Cavern Thalia, the game wasn't even close. Oh, sure. Yeah. Having Cavern plus a Mox also sets you up for a good turn two, and... Oh, yeah, exactly. And so on. I mean, like, you're already in the driver's seat, regardless of whether you play Thalia or something else. Exactly. And there's one time I was on the play, I got the turn one Bob, and then Bob flipped over Thalia, and my opponent just visibly sighed. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the interesting things about Thalia is that it has first strike. So I'm sure, I mean, if you have a, a mayor out, I mean, a three, a three, two first striker is actually, that kills most things in vintage. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's why Porcelain Legionnaire is is right. decent. I mean, three power plus first strike wins. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah, and when you make it uncounterable and a hate right. bear, it just... I mean, I know Mud just, or Shop just had so much trouble against Thalia because when I got the mayor out, it killed everything he had. Right, sure. Yeah, because I had the one Shop player that played Worm Coil, which luckily I had swords when he played it the later game, but... Against the other one where it was my second um shop opponent only had Phyrexian invokers and Lodestone Golems. Right. And so Thalia was just I could just keep it back and he couldn't break through. He couldn't do anything. Right. Did you ever play against Dredge? I didn't. I got a complete okay. dodge dredge, which I was very happy about. Yeah, well I was just I mean that's always a viable tournament strategy because I noticed your hate against them seems mm-hmm. Yeah. Light. I mean, it's not, you have a surgical extraction, two graft diggers cages, and two rest and feeds, which, I mean, that's maybe not enough, probably not enough against them if you actually faced them. But I know that uh, one of the things we noticed about Dredge at Gen Con was that a lot of it seemed to get knocked out early. Like, there was Dredge there, but it was gone after round two. Yeah. Right. And with me being able to get my, you know, kind of go on my rampage early on Friday. Right. Oh, I think is what really allowed me to go 5-2, because if I would have gotten yeah. my losses early and gotten to play against Dredge, right. 
I mean, because the turn one Thalia only does so much against that deck. Can't stretch. <laughs> yeah. Not needing to resolve a spell is really good against Thalia. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see if it's our Baghdad. I'm holding on to my abrupt decay. <laughs> right. Yeah. On that permanence. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, I guess, you know, your deck was obviously had good choices in it already, and then you got, had a little bit of luck to get to where you were, but I mean, it sounds like you know, ultimately, it was you, you were able to outplay opponents in a lot of cases and win. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it was definitely interesting because I mean, that's when, like, you may combine me telling people that I... It was my first vintage tournament and such. Right. And I think some people really did underestimate me because I came in, you know, I'm just trying to be super friendly because... Because right. I'm playing vintage. No, I was so excited. Nobody trusts the friendly guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really some moral you should take away from this podcast. <laughs> I was like, if your opponent seems really friendly, just call him and and just, you know, knuckle down. Yeah, kick him <laughs> under the table. Well, that I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I'm, like I said, we were really looking forward to talking to you. We were following your exploits all weekend. It's great that you did well with, with a deck that doesn't always do well. And you did well both days. So obviously, you're... Something you know, was going it, right. It, yeah, it wasn't a fluke. So. Right. Well, thank you. And... Those only things that, cause I had one friend comment that whenever he came over to see how I was doing, he could tell what table I was at because there was a crowd around it. Right. <laughs> I met one guy who, he had a friend in the vintage tournament, and he basically followed me around for a majority <laughs> of my matches both days because he thought my deck was his most hilarious thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and like he was looking at him, he's like, I don't think this could beat most modern decks. <laughs> That's one of the things that's interesting in cross formats is that sometimes decks in like vintage decks or whatever decks can be really weak to decks and from other formats because they're just not tuned. Right. Right. Obviously, no, exactly. a vintage deck is not tuned against the modern metagame, and weird things can happen there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, I mean, the human ingenuity really is a metagame deck. Yeah. But it means one of those things where. Near where I live in Platteville, they have Legacy every other Friday, just four-round, basically an F&M-style event, just mm-hmm. for me to play Legacy. And one time, this kid showed up with a bad standard deck that was mono-black, 20 spot removal spells. Oh. I think he went 4-0 because most decks yeah. don't run that many creatures and then sure. just win. Right. And he, he got to dodge combo, so it yeah all in his favor, but yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, would you, if you were to play the deck again, do you know of any changes that you would make or any, you know, any adjustments or cards that you would like to see? <laughs> yeah, I think I would definitely take the Sting Scorchers out of the sideboard. Okay. Probably adding in some, like, another Rest in Peace and the fourth Source of Plowshare. Okay. Because even though I never played against Dredge, I did side in Rest in Peace once because I went against the Bug Fish deck with Snapcaster. <laughs> yeah. Snapcasters, Death Rites, and Goyf. So right. I decided out my Death Rites and just brought those in so that I could blank something like ten of his cards. Right. Yeah, Rest in Peace is a house in that matchup. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I mean, unfortunately, I can only say so much because I just don't have enough experience with the format. So. Right. But overall, I mean, there wasn't really any cards that seemed really unimpressive to me. Liliana of the Veil maybe should come out because of how hard she is to cast, but there are times when she just can win you games. Sure. So it's one I'm iffy on, and both of Ghouls is another one of those cards where it can be so ridiculous, but yeah. sometimes, but it's 
probably the hardest spell to resolve in the deck. I think I was mentioning this to you guys earlier um, before we started the podcast because you play four caverns, you play four abrupt decays, so I had all these opponents holding on to their counter magic. So eventually I would draw Oath of Goons, like, oh, Oath of Goons, like, hey, finally, this yeah. spell pierce does something. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're not going to be doing anything else with them, you have to have to use those counters where they work. So. <laughs> no, exactly, and so that was... I mean, that's one of these, I wasn't able to do so much with this deck, but I've done it in other formats where when counters are really bad against me, for instance, in this deck, it almost becomes worth bringing in more counterable targets post-board because you know their, you know their counters are coming out, so I could see putting up Oath of Ghouls in the sideboard, or copies oh, in the sideboard. Yeah, cool, because I know when I played against you on Friday, I boarded out at least two Force of Wills. I may have boarded out all four, just because for one, they're going to two-for-one me, and for another, I'm probably not going to get to use them anyway. So right, exactly. I just wanted to bring in more removal if I could. I don't remember what I had, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> you know, and that's exactly the thought. That if your opponents are going to need to bring in all their removal, then right. both rules would be a great sideboard card. But right, yeah. Well, that's great. talk a little bit about your experience in vintage in general, because I know this was your, you know, Gen Con was your first actual vintage tournaments, and I assume, did you have fun? Oh, I had tons of fun. (laughs) I don't think I had a single opponent or met a single person playing vintage that I didn't have at least one joke with. Yeah. Where it was just, I mean, everybody was incredibly friendly. The main reason I wanted to get into vintage more and more is because of how awesome just the community was at Gen Con. Right. Yeah, like, I, and we, we talked about this in our, I think our last podcast where we were saying that the Gen Con community this year, the Gen Con vintage community this year seemed especially close and tight knit and friendly. Like there were a lot of, a lot of people who were talking with different groups and, you know, joking around, walking around and we just had a great time. I'm <laughs> glad you did too. I mean, luckily for me, while I didn't know people there, I had the great icebreaker of, yes, I'm that random guy playing Huntmaster. Right, yeah. <laughs> so are you, I mean, are you gonna try and continue playing vintage? Oh yeah, I'm definitely going to try. I mean, unfortunately with not owning the cards. Right. I can only do so much. I have um two decks completely proxied up here so that oh, when when I see um Brian again, you know, we'll just sit down and play vintage in between rounds at whatever tournament we're doing. Yeah, good. Yeah, but otherwise I know he's trying to add some of the local shops in Cedar Rapid to get proxy vintage tournaments going. Yeah, good does. Yeah, it's it's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard work, but it's it's worth it. I mean, there's growing interest in the format. I think a lot of people are tentative about getting into it. A lot of people just need to experience it as you have to, uh, well, as you have maybe not with all the initial success, but uh, you know, <laughs> just, just to actually just to actually sit down and play the game and you know actually see some of the interactions and what can happen and that sort of thing. I think people get into it. Yeah, I think I mean part of the problem is that a lot of people look at it and see, oh, we can play every card. Uh, that right. means there's going to be broken stuff everywhere. And while that's possible, I mean, because I've met so many people who have that same thought about Legacy until they actually play Legacy. Right. And they realize that, yes, there's a really powerful decks like Char, Belcher, and Tendrils, but there's enough hate for those decks that they make up a very small portion of the... Right. The, I mean, and that's, for instance, like the metagame at Gen Con, 
there were very little combo. I mean, I got to run into Jerry and, you know, completely luck sack my way to victory, but... <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and I mean, part of it, as you sort of hinted at, that, you know, a lot of the powerful cards sort of cancel each other out. I mean, like, what you end up having happen is that you're, you're sort of throwing bombs at each other until one sticks, and, you know, a lot of times you can fight one off or counter it with a better one, or, I mean, in your case, you're playing a whole bunch of accumulating smaller things that add up to answer things. I mean, there's lots of ways to go about vintage that take apart its power. Yeah, so it's such an open format that... Right. When you get in the spots, like, at Gen Con, when people wanted to play so much control, it's just grabbing just what's not expected and being able right. to mess around with it. Right. I mean, anytime you can come at a solved metagame in quotes and come with something new and unique, like, you'll you'll win games, and obviously you, you had some luck with that, too. So I definitely got some of the free wins from opponents not knowing what was going on and me just being faced with Thalia and Bob, and they just look at me like, oh, I'm at four now. How that yeah. happened? <laughs> That's too late for me to come back. <laughs> I should have <laughs> done something earlier. Nothing. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, it's good to hear, too, that, you know, there is movement towards actually getting some vintage tournaments started. I always like to hear about small communities building up. That's obviously part of what we're trying to do with this show. So good. I don't know why I wanted to talk about pancakes. I think it was just because it's fall, so a lot of the pancake recipes that I have are, like, fall flavors. I mean... Really? Yeah, well, because I have, like, I have a pumpkin pancake recipe that's pretty good, and I had recently made buckwheat pancakes that sort of tasted like fall, but... (laughs) (laughs) For me, pancakes and or waffles have always been a Sunday morning tradition forever. Like year-round? Yeah, yeah. My (sighs) parents have pancakes or waffles Sunday morning every week, every month, all the time. And it's funny because (laughs) Jeremy Smith, you have met in Columbus, he liked this so much that he picked up the same thing and does the exact same thing. Every Sunday morning, he gets up and makes pancakes from scratch. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I make pancakes a lot. I don't do it every week, but it's definitely something that I'll get a taste for pancakes and make them. And like I said, we have have a few recipes that we use. But I, I think my favorite one, and I, I make this one pretty frequently, is actually a cottage cheese pancake recipe. Really? Yeah. And it's got, I mean, it's basically regular pancakes, only you put some cottage cheese in them, and the... Part of it is also that when you put the eggs in, you actually beat them beforehand so that they're nice and fluffy, like you make a little bit of meringue before you put in the in the eggs. So they, they end up just being really light and really creamy, and there's a little bit of nutmeg and cinnamon in them, so they're nice and spicy. They're really good with pretty much any kind of syrup, and they're awesome with blueberries. Yeah, uh, I, I have to admit that when it comes to Sarah and I making pancakes, we take a shortcut and we just make Bisquick pancakes. Yeah. Well, this quick makes great pancakes. I did just, while we were on break, I had my mother send me her best pancakes ever recipe, and it looks like a fairly typical buttermilk pancakes recipe to me. Okay. I'll send it to you so we can include it in the show notes. <laughs> right. I have to admit that going to her house periodically on Sundays, they are really good pancakes. 
Right. Well, does she use the actual buttermilk, or does she... Does yeah, she... She, she uses the actual buttermilk. Okay. I was wondering if she made the buttermilk, but was that regular milk and lemon juice that you can substitute in? Oh, really? I've never heard of that. Yeah, I think that's it. This thing. looks like it has a combination of buttermilk and regular milk. Regular milk, right. Well, I know the, the pumpkin pancake recipe that we have, that we got from Elizabeth's mother, is also has buttermilk in it. Those are really, really good. Yeah, pancakes are gamer fuel, though. <laughs> There's nothing better to gear up for a magic tournament than with a large stack of pancakes. Right. You know, I was talking about it a little bit. As you say that you have a really good basic pancake recipe, or buttermilk pancake recipe anyway, I had been using the recipe that was in Joy of Cooking, which I love the Joy of Cooking as a cookbook. They have a lot of good information beyond even recipes. But I think that their pancake recipe is flawed. Um, seems crazy, because how many printings must Joy of Cooking have? I don't on? know, but I think my correction for it was to add an extra half cup of flour and an extra half teaspoon of baking powder because they were coming out way, way too thin. Hmm. And, I'm, you know, after following the directions, they're still coming out thin and they're just not very good. So, but that seemed to help. And actually, the last time I made that recipe with the correction and substituted the half cup of added flour with a half cup of buckwheat flour, which actually, that, that was nice. They had a good buckwheat flavor, which is sort of nutty and whole grainy. But that was good, too. Do you put anything else in your pancakes, or do you usually just enjoy them straight? I, actually, I guess all of those recipes have a little bit of nutmeg and a little bit of cinnamon, usually, uh, and some vanilla. I mean, as but, far as but like I'm fine blueberries with or, or apples and stuff like that. We, I did put blueberries in some of the buckwheat cakes, and a lot of times we put blueberries in the cottage cheese pancakes. And actually, I, th- I think I've used peaches and strawberries in the cottage cheese pancakes, too. And all of those have been really good. The, the peaches were a little bit subtle, like they didn't add a whole bunch of flavor. But everything was been that. Those pancakes are just really hard to mess up. <laughs> They're always good. I saw a hypothetical online that says you're in business and you sit down to breakfast with a powerful business client and he orders chocolate chip pancakes. <laughs> what do you think of this? And my answer to that is, guy likes chocolate awesome. chip pancakes. What's wrong with that? Because one of the reasons why I ask you what you put in your pancakes is because chocolate chip pancakes is one of the things that we do when we're making really delicious pancakes. I've never made chocolate chip pancakes myself. Really? It's really good. Well, I, re- I mean, you're putting chocolate chips in a pancake. Do you put, still put syrup on it? No, no. It's just butter and the chocolate chips. You don't want to mix the syrup and the chocolate. Uh, what about strawberry syrup? And put fruit syrup on there? That sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was just, just wondering. Yeah, I would do that. Yeah. Let's, man, we should do this. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never made chocolate chip pancakes before, and I can't remember ever having ordered them at a restaurant. In general, I have found that there are other types of pancakes that I would rather order in a restaurant. Right. Because, like, what? chocolate chip pancakes are really easy. Like, it's a lot more effort involved to make apple pancakes, which is another thing I enjoy eating at a restaurant. Chocolate chips is just like, yep, I got this gigantic bag of chocolate chips from Costco, and I'm going to put some in a pancake. (laughs) Got there. (laughs) What were you going to say, Stephen? I just made common. They're delicious because the chocolate's all melty in the pancakes. Oh, yeah. yeah. But no, it's amazing. Guys, if I ever come up to your area to play vintage, we are having pancakes. Man, sure. 
Yeah, we we should definitely go to like Black River Cafe. I yeah, we should probably hawk Black River Cafe because it is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, Black River Cafe is a small diner in Oberlin, Ohio that has um they they have I guess they would have nine different kinds of pancakes that you could choose because they have buttermilk, cornmeal, and is it multigrain? Yes. And then three different kinds of filling. So I guess it's actually twelve because you get plain pancakes. But they or is it four different kinds of filling? <laughs> Um, no, they, so they, I think they have chocolate chips, raspberry, blueberry, and apple. Yeah. And actually, you might be able to combine those. I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. But their pancakes are excellent. Yeah. The entire place is really just sort of, I mean, let's be honest, it's a place owned by hippies that wants to serve food to hippies. So you know that they're all natural and delicious. Yeah. Do you guys have anywhere like that in Iowa? Where do you go for pancakes? Oh god, where do I? I think I tell my mom that pancakes would sound delicious. That that's good enough. I have no problem with that. <laughs> Unfortunately, where I'm at, there is more chains than anything else. But yeah, I, I have I, to admit, I, I've IHOP been, makes a makes a mean pancake. I was gonna they're, say I've never been to an IHOP before. Right. We uh, you know, a lot of times on vacation we'll go to a, to an IHOP for breakfast or a Denny's, and you know, their their pancakes are solid. Yeah, they're, they're good. I mean, it, granted, it's kind of hard to screw up a pancake. But, right. Well, I mean, especially when you're making Right. You should see some of my pancakes where I forget that I'm making pancakes. That's that's a screwed up pancake for you. Well, and those, those ones out of the joy of cooking that were a little thin, those were pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that can be a shame. You just end up with something that's sort of like a limp. Yeah, but not like a crepe. Not like it's, a crepe. It's just a terrible pancake. You might be able to make a simulated crepe out of it. Right. You're getting close there. Right. Yeah, speaking of crepes, because there are excellent crepes. I think crepes are one of those trending foods right now. Yeah, I, um, I agree. For people going to Vintage Champs, there's an excellent creperie in um, Philadelphia. How did you get hooked up on a creperie in Philadelphia, if I may ask? When we were living in D.C., we went with a couple of friends up to Philadelphia to tour Eastern State Penitentiary. Which is an excellent tourist destination if you're interested in, um, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what, prisons? Okay, it's, 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 it's just, it's the, I think it's the longest, or for a long time, it was the longest active penitentiary in the United States because it was open from the 1700s. Like, I know that Benjamin Franklin had a hand in its opening. So from the 1700s until, I think, the 1970s. So it was open for, you know, 200 years or close to it. And Never got it held. plumbing. Well, no, but, but I mean, it was just, yeah, I mean, they told some of the different theories of actual you know, penal life that were developed through that time. So, I mean, like the first prison cells there were totally solitary. You talked to and heard no one except God. And that was how you did your penance, was that, you know, you sat and thought about what you did and talked to God about it. And and <laughs> the, when you were done, you were, you know, that was how you did penance. The I ultimate time out and think about what you've right. done. Pretty much. And, you know, you know, as we, as you went on, you know, they installed the electric chair and, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. So there are different kinds of punishments doled out. It was a really interesting tour that they gave. They had a whole bunch of stuff going on. The actual different cell blocks from different eras and th- things like that. It was, it was pretty cool. 
So anyway, we went up to Philadelphia to tour that and also to tour the Olympia, which is the last warship from the Spanish-American War. Stop so, stalling. What's the crepery? It's Café Beaumont. Ah, Café um, Yeah, and so they had insane crepes, and you could get appetizer crepes and entree crepes and dessert crepes. So if you wanted a meal filled with crepes, they had it. <laughs> it was a crepey meal, but... So, yeah, I, I would highly recommend going there when you're in Philadelphia for Vintage Champs. If you have time not playing Vintage, you know, perhaps on Saturday during the Legacy Tournament, is, you can go to our Eastern State Penitentiary, too. Is that anywhere near the convention? Uh, actually, where is the Vintage Champs being held? I assume Vintage Champs is at the convention center, which is actually across the street from... Well, it's not. It's really not anywhere near <laughs> there, but so you'll have to probably take a car. Fair enough. But it's interesting to get to. Like, wouldn't worry too much about that. And the, the food is excellent, and the neighborhood is kind of cool. So you can go there and spend some time after the tournament or whatever. Neat. Yeah. So highly recommend that one. I guess crepes are like a pancake. They are really like a pancake. Yeah. Actually, speaking of pancakes, at the uh, Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia, there's actually a, a diner there that has really good pancakes. I think it is probably the Down Home Diner. Where is your um, preparation they, now? Now, but come on! I didn't know we were going I was. I didn't know I was gonna be talking about pancake places. But anyway, Down Home Diner at Reading Terminal Market, which is within a block easily of the uh, convention center, they have really good pancakes as well as other breakfast food. Like if you were planning on going out to get breakfast before tournaments on the Eternal Weekend, I highly recommend that. Although it will probably be crowded, so go early. I would, in general, highly recommend breakfast before tournaments because. It's a great way to hang out with friends, and also, it's probably the best way to ensure that you don't get those fourth or fifth round hunger pangs that cause you to crash and burn. Yeah, I get those anyway. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think breakfast is very important. <laughs> <laughs> It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. And I'm Nat Mose. And we've been here with Steven Stearman, the Four Fellow Humans player from Gen Con. Thanks very much for being here, Steven. Thanks for having me. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see. I'm probably going to go make pancakes now, to be completely honest.